0: Chapter 6, Parts 4, 5, and 6 of War in the Air. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. War in the Air by H. G. Wells. Part 4 the lamentable incidents that followed the surrender of new york seem now in the retrospect to be but the necessary and inevitable consequence of the clash of modern appliances and social conditions produced by the scientific century on the one hand and the tradition of a crude romantic patriotism on the other at first people received the fact with an irresponsible detachment much as they would have received the slowing down of the train in which they were travelling or the erection of a public monument by the city to which they belonged we have surrendered dear me have we was rather the manner in which the first news was met they took it in the same spectacular spirit they had displayed at the first apparition of the air fleet Only slowly was this realization of a capitulation suffused with a flush of passion. Only with reflection did they make any personal application. We have surrendered, came later. In us America is defeated. Then they began to burn and tingle. The newspapers, which were issued about one in the morning, contained no particulars of the terms upon which New York had yielded nor did they give any intimation of the quality of the brief conflict that had preceded the capitulation the later issues remedied these deficiencies there came the explicit statement of the agreement to victual the german airships to supply the complement of explosives to replace those employed in the fight and in the destruction of the north american fleet to pay the enormous ransom of forty million dollars and to surrender the flotilla in the east river there came too longer and longer descriptions of the smashing up of the city hall and the navy yard and people began to realize faintly what those brief minutes of uproar had meant they read the tales of men blown to bits of feudal soldiers in that localized battle fighting against hope amidst an indescribable wreckage of flags hauled down by weeping men and these strange nocturnal editions contained also the first brief cables from europe of the fleet disaster the north atlantic fleet for which new york had always felt an especial pride and solicitude slowly hour by hour the collective consciousness woke up the tide of patriotic astonishment and humiliation came floating in america had come upon disaster suddenly new york discovered herself with amazement giving place to wrath unspeakable, a conquered city under the hand of her conqueror. As that fact shaped itself in the public mind, there sprang up, as flames spring up, an angry repudiation. No! cried New York, waking in the dawn. No! I am not defeated! This is a dream! Before day broke, the swift American anger was running through all the city, through every soul in those contagious millions. Before it took action, before it took shape, the men in the airships could feel the gigantic insurgence of emotion, as cattle and natural creatures feel, it is said, the coming of an earthquake. The newspapers of the Knipe group first gave the thing words and a formula. We do not agree, they said simply. We have been betrayed. Men took that up everywhere. It passed from mouth to mouth, at every street corner under the paling lights of dawn, orators stood unchecked, calling upon the spirit of America to arise, making the shame a personal reality to everyone who heard. To Bert, listening five hundred feet above it, it seemed that the city, which had at first produced only confused noises, was now humming like a hive of bees, of very angry bees. After the smashing of the city hall and post office, the white flag had been hoisted from a tower of the old Park Row building and thither had gone mayor o'hagan urged thither indeed by the terror-stricken property owners of lower new york to negotiate the capitulation with von winterfeld the Vaterland, having dropped the secretary by a rope ladder remained hovering circling very slowly above the great buildings old and new that clustered around city hall park while the helm-holes, which had done the fighting there, rose overhead to a height of perhaps two thousand feet. So Bert had a near view of all that occurred in that central place. The city hall and courthouse, the post office, and a mass of buildings on the west side of Broadway, had been badly damaged, and the three former were a heap of blackened ruins. In the case of the first two, the loss of life had not been considerable but a great multitude of workers including many girls and women had been caught in the destruction of the post office and a little army of volunteers with white badges entered behind the firemen bringing out the often still living bodies for the most part frightfully charred and carrying them into the big monson building close at hand everywhere the busy firemen were directing their bright streams of water upon the smouldering masses their hose lay about the square and long cordons of police held back the gathering black masses of people chiefly from the east side from these central activities in violent and extraordinary contrast with this scene of destruction close at hand were the huge newspaper establishments of park row they were all alight and working they had not been abandoned even while the actual bomb-throwing was going on and now staff and presses were vehemently active getting out the story, the immense and dreadful story of the night, developing comment, and, in most cases, spreading the idea of resistance under the very noses of the airships. For a long time, Bert could not imagine what these callously active offices could be. Then he detected the noise of the presses and emitted his gaw. Beyond these newspaper buildings, again, and partially hidden by the arches of the old elevated railway of New York long since converted into a monorail, there was another cordon of police and a sort of encampment of ambulances and doctors, busy with the dead and wounded who had been killed early in the night by the panic upon Brooklyn Bridge. All this he saw in the perspectives of a bird's-eye view as things happening in a big, irregular-shaped pit below him, between cliffs of high building northward he looked along the steep canyon of broadway down whose length at intervals crowds were assembling about excited speakers and when he lifted his eyes he saw the chimneys and cable stacks and roof spaces of new york and everywhere now over these the watching debating people clustered except where the fires raged and the jets of water flew everywhere too were flagstaffs devoid of flags one white sheet drooped and flapped and drooped again over the Park Row buildings. And upon the lurid lights, the festering movement and intense shadows of this strange scene, there was breaking now the cold, impartial dawn. For Bert Smallways all this was framed in the frame of the open porthole. It was a pale, dim world outside that dark and tangible rim. All night he had clutched at that rim, jumped and quivered at explosions, and watched phantom events. Now he had been high, and now low, now almost beyond hearing, now flying close to crashings and shouts and outcries. He had seen airships flying low and swift over darkened and groaning streets, watched great buildings suddenly redlit amidst the shadows, crumple at the smashing impact of bombs, witnessed for the first time in his life the grotesque, swift onset of insatiable conflagrations from it all he felt detached disembodied the Vaterland did not even fling a bomb she watched and ruled then down they had come at last to hover over city hall park and it had crept in upon his mind chillingly terrifyingly that these illuminated black masses were great offices of fire and that the going to and fro of minute dim spectres of lantern-lit grey and white was a harvesting of the wounded and the dead as the light grew clearer he began to understand more and more what these crumpled black things signified he had watched hour after hour since first new york had risen out of the blue indistinctness of the landfall with the daylight he experienced an intolerable fatigue he lifted weary eyes to the pink flush in the sky yawned immensely and crawled back whispering to himself across the cabin to the locker he did not so much lie down upon that as fall upon it and instantly become asleep there hours after sprawling undignified and sleeping profoundly kurt found him a very image of the democratic mind confronted with the problems of a time too complex for its apprehension his face was pale and indifferent his mouth wide open and he snored he snored disagreeably Kurt regarded him for a moment with a mild distaste then he kicked his ankle wake up he said to smallways stare and lie down decent bert sat up and rubbed his eyes any more fightin yet he asked no said Kurt, and sat down a tired man "Got," he cried presently rubbing his hands over his face but i'd like a cold bath I've been looking for stray bullet holes in the air chambers all night until now. He yawned. I must sleep. You'd better clear out, smallways. I can't stand you here this morning. You're so infernally ugly and useless. Have you had your rations? No. Well, go in and get them, and don't come back. Stick in the gallery. Part 5. So Bert slightly refreshed by coffee and sleep resumed his helpless cooperation in the war in the air he went down into the little gallery as a lieutenant had directed and clung to the rail at the extreme end beyond the lookout man trying to seem as inconspicuous and harmless a fragment of life as possible a wind was rising rather strongly from the southeast it obliged the waterland to come about in that direction and made her roll a great deal as she went to and fro over manhattan island away in the northwest clouds gathered the throb throb of her slow screw working against the breeze was much more perceptible than when she was going full speed ahead and the friction of the wind against the under side of the gas chamber drove a series of shallow ripples along it and made a faint flapping sound like but fainter than the beating of ripples under the stem of a boat she was stationed over the temporary city hall in the park row building and every now and then she would descend to resume communication with the mayor and with washington but the restlessness of the prince would not suffer him to remain for long in any one place now he would circle over the hudson and east river now he would go up high as if to peer away into the blue distances once he ascended so swiftly and so far that mountain sickness overtook him and the crew and forced him down again and bert shared the dizziness and nausea the swaying view varied with these changes of altitude now they would be low and close and he would distinguish in that steep unusual perspective windows doors street and sky signs people and the minutest details, and watched the enigmatical behavior of crowds and clusters upon the roofs and in the streets. Then, as they soared, the details would shrink, the sides of streets draw together, the view widen, the people ceased to be significant. At the highest, the effect was that of a concave relief map bert saw the dark and crowded land everywhere intersected by shining waters saw the hudson river like a spear of silver and lower island sound like a shield even to bert's unphilosophical mind the contrast of city below and fleet above pointed in opposition the opposition of the adventurous american's tradition and character with german order and discipline Below, the immense buildings, tremendous and fine as they were, seemed like the giant trees of a jungle fighting for life. Their picturesque magnificence was as planless as the chances of crag and gorge, their casualty enhanced by the smoke and confusion of still unsubdued and spreading conflagrations. In the sky soared the German airships like beings in a different, entirely more orderly world all oriented to the same angle of the horizon uniform in build and appearance moving accurately with one purpose as a pack of wolves will move distributed with the most precise and effectual cooperation it dawned upon bert that hardly a third of the fleet was visible the others had gone upon errands he could not imagine beyond the compass of that great circle of earth and sky he wondered but there was no one to ask as the day wore on about a dozen reappeared in the east with their stores replenished from the flotilla and towing a number of drachenflager towards afternoon the weather thickened driving clouds appeared in the southwest and ran together and seemed to engender more clouds and the wind came round into that porter and blew stronger towards the evening the wind became a gale into which the now tossing airships had to beat all that day The Prince was negotiating with Washington, while his detached scouts sought far and wide over the eastern states, looking for anything resembling an aeronautic park. A squadron of twenty airships detached overnight had dropped out of the air upon Niagara and was holding the town and power works. Meanwhile, the insurrectionary movement in the giant city grew uncontrollable in spite of five great fires already involving many acres and spreading steadily new york was still not satisfied that she was beaten at first the rebellious spirit below found vent only in isolated shouts street crowd speeches and newspaper suggestions then it found much more definite expression in the appearance in the morning sunlight of american flags at point after point above the architectural cliffs of the city it is quite possible that in many cases the spirited display of bunting by a city already surrendered was the outcome of the innocent informality of the american mind but it is also undeniable that in many it was a deliberate indication that the people felt wicked the german sense of correctitude was deeply shocked by this outbreak the graf von winterfeld immediately communicated with the mayor and pointed out the irregularity and the fire lookout stations were instructed in the matter the new york police was speedily hard at work and a foolish contest in full swing between impassioned citizens resolved to keep the flag flying and irritated and worried officers instructed to pull it down the trouble became acute at last in the streets above columbia university the captain of the airship watching this quarter seems to have stooped to lasso and dragged from its staff a flag hoisted upon morgan hall as he did so a volley of rifle and revolver shots was fired from the upper windows of the huge apartment building that stands between the university and riverside drive most of these were ineffectual but two or three perforated gas chambers and one smashed the hand and arm of a man upon the forward platform the sentinel on the lower gallery immediately replied and the machine-gun on the shield of the eagle let fly and promptly stopped any further shots the airship rose and signalled the flagship and city hall police and militiamen were directed at once to the spot and this particular incident closed But hard upon that came the desperate attempt of a party of young clubmen from New York who, inspired by patriotic and adventurous imaginations, slipped off in half a dozen motor-cars to Beacon Hill, and set to work with remarkable vigor to improvise a fort about the Doan swivel-gun that had been placed there. They found it still in the hands of the disgusted gunners who had been ordered to cease fire at the capitulation, and it was easy to infect these men with their own spirit. They declared their gun hadn't had half a chance, and were burning to show what it could do. Directed by the newcomers, they made a trench and bank about the mounting of the piece, and constructed flimsy shelter pits of corrugated iron. They were actually loading the gun when they were observed by the airship ProSEN, and the shell they succeeded in firing before the bombs of the latter smashed them, and their crew defenses to fragments burst over the middle gas chambers of the brigand and brought her to earth disabled upon staten island she was badly deflated and dropped among trees over which her empty central gas-bags spread in canopies and festoons nothing however had caught fire and her men were speedily at work upon her repair they behaved with a confidence that verged upon indiscretion while most of them commenced patching the tears of the membrane half a dozen of them started off for the nearest road in search of a gas main and presently found themselves prisoners in the hands of a hostile crowd close at hand was a number of villa residences whose occupants speedily developed from an unfriendly curiosity to aggression at that time the police control of the large polyglot population of stanton island had become very lax and scarcely a household but had its rifle or pistols and ammunition these were presently produced and after two or three misses one of the men at work was hit in the foot thereupon the germans left their sewing and mending to cover among the trees and replied the crackling of shots speedily brought the Prosen and keel on the scene and with a few hand grenades they made short work of every villa within a mile a number of non-combatant american men women and children were killed and the actual assailants driven off for a time the repairs went on in peace under the immediate protection of these two airships then when they returned to their quarters an intermittent sniping and fighting round the stranded bingen was resumed and went on all the afternoon and merged at last in the general combat of the evening About eight, the Bingen was rushed by an armed mob, and all its defenders killed after a fierce, disorderly struggle. The difficulty of the Germans in both these cases came from the impossibility of landing any efficient force, or indeed, any force at all from the air fleet. The airships were quite unequal to the transport of any adequate landing parties. Their complement of men was just sufficient to maneuver and fight them in the air, From above, they could inflict immense damage. They could reduce any organized government to a capitulation in the briefest space, but they could not disarm, much less could they occupy the surrendered areas below. They had to trust to the pressure upon the authorities below of a threat to renew the bombardment. It was their sole resource. No doubt, with a highly organized and undamaged government and a homogeneous and well-disciplined people, they would have sufficed to keep the peace but this was not the American case. Not only was the New York government a weak one and insufficiently provided with police, but the destruction of the city hall and post office and other central ganglia had hopelessly disorganized the cooperation of part with part. The street cars and railways had ceased. The telephone service was out of gear and only worked intermittently, the germans had struck at the head and the head was conquered and stunned only to release the body from its rule new york had become a headless monster no longer capable of collective submission everywhere it lifted itself rebelliously everywhere authorities and officials left to their own imitative were joining in the arming and flag hoisting and excitement of that afternoon part six The disintegrating truce gave place to a definite general breach with the assassination of the Wetterhorn, for that is the only possible word for the act, above Union Square and not a mile away from the exemplary ruins of City Hall. This occurred late in the afternoon, between five and six. By that time the weather had changed very much for the worse, and the operations of the airships were embarrassed by the necessity they were under of keeping head on to the gusts, a series of squalls with hail and thunder followed one another from the south by southeast, and in order to avoid these as much as possible, the air fleet came low over the houses, diminishing its range of observation and exposing itself to a rifle attack. Overnight there had been a gun placed in Union Square. It had never been mounted, much less fired, and in the darkness after the surrender it was taken with its supplies and put out of the way under the arches of the great Dexter building here late in the morning it was remarked by a number of patriotic spirits they set to work to hoist and mount it inside the upper floors of the place they made in fact a masked battery behind the decorous office blinds and there lay in wait as simply excited as children until at last the stem of the luckless venterhorn appeared beating and rolling at quarter speed over the recently reconstructed pinnacles of tiffany's promptly that one gun battery unmasked The airship's lookout man must have seen the whole of the tenth story of the Dexter building crumble out and smash in the street below to discover the black muzzle looking out from the shadows behind. Then, perhaps, the shell hit him. The gun fired two shells before the frame of the Dexter building collapsed, and each shell raked the weatherhorn from stem to stern. They smashed her exhaustively. She crumpled up like a can that has been kicked by a heavy boot. Her forepart came down in the square, and the rest of her length, with a great snapping and twisting of shafts and stays, descended, collapsing athwart Tammany Hall and the streets towards 2nd Avenue. Her gas escaped to mix with air, and the air of her rent balloonette poured into her deflating gas chambers. Then, with an immense impact, she exploded. The waterland at that time was beating up to the south of City Hall from over the ruins of the Brooklyn Bridge, and the reports of the gun, followed by the first crashes of the collapsing Dexter Building, brought Kurt and Smallways to the cabin porthole. They were in time to see the flash of the exploding gun, and then they were first flattened against the window and then rolled head over heels across the floor of the cabin by the air wave of the explosion. The Vaterland bounded like a football someone has kicked, and when they looked out again, Union Square was small and remote and shattered, as though some cosmically vast giant had rolled over it. The buildings to the east of it were ablaze at a dozen points. Under the flaming tatters and warping skeleton of the airship and all the roofs and walls were ridiculously askew and crumbling as one looked. "Gaw," said Bert. "'What's happened?' "'Look at the people!' But before Kurt could produce an explanation, the shrill bells of the airship were ringing to quarters, and he had to go. Bert hesitated and stepped thoughtfully into the passage, looking back at the window as he did so. He was knocked off his feet at once by the prince, who was rushing headlong from his cabin to the central magazine bert had a momentary impression of the great figure of the prince white with rage bristling with gigantic anger his huge fist swinging blut und eisen cried the prince as one who swears oh blut and eisen someone fell over bert something in the manner of falling suggested von winterfeld and someone else paused and kicked him spitefully and hard then he was sitting up in the passage rubbing a freshly bruised cheek, and readjusting the bandage he still wore on his head. "'Dem that prince,' said Bert, indignant beyond measure, "'he asn't the manners of a og." He stood up, collected his wits for a minute, and then went slowly towards the gangway of the little gallery. As he did so, he heard noises suggestive of the return of the prince. The lot of them were coming back again." He shot into his cabin like a rabbit into its burrow, just in time to escape that shouting terror. He shut the door, waited until the passage was still, then went across to the window and looked out. A drift of cloud made the prospect of the streets and squares hazy, and the rolling of the airship swung the picture up and down. A few people were running to and fro, but for the most part the aspect of the district was desertion. The streets seemed to broaden out. They became clearer, and the little dots that were people larger as the Vaterland, came down again. Presently she was swaying along above the lower end of Broadway. The dots below, Bert saw, were not running now, but standing and looking up. Then suddenly they were all running again. Something had dropped from the aeroplane, something that looked small and flimsy. It hit the pavement near a big archway just underneath Bert. A little man was sprinting along the sidewalk within half a dozen yards, and two or three others and one woman were bolting across the roadway. They were odd little figures, so very small were they above the heads, so very active about the elbows and legs. It was really funny to see their legs going. Foreshortened, humanity has no dignity. The little man on the pavement jumped comically, no doubt with terror, as the bomb fell beside him then blinding flames squirted out in all directions from the point of impact and the little man who had jumped became for an instant a flash of fire and vanished vanished absolutely the people running out into the road took preposterous clumsy leaps then flopped down and lay still with their torn clothes smouldering into flame then pieces of the archway began to drop and the lower masonry of the building to fall in with the rumbling sound of coals being shot into a cellar a faint screaming reached bert and then a crowd of people ran out into the street one man limping and gesticulating awkwardly he halted and went back towards the building a falling mass of brickwork hit him and sent him sprawling to lie still and crumpled where he fell dust and black smoke came pouring into the street and were presently shot with red flame in this manner the massacre of new york began She was the first of the great cities of the scientific age to suffer by the enormous powers and grotesque limitations of aerial warfare. She was wrecked as in the previous century endless barbaric cities had been bombarded, because she was at once too strong to be occupied and too undisciplined and proud to surrender in order to escape destruction given the circumstances the thing had to be done it was impossible for the prince to desist and own himself defeated and it was impossible to subdue the city except by largely destroying it the catastrophe was a logical outcome of the situation created by the application of science to warfare it was unavoidable that great cities should be destroyed In spite of his intense exasperation with his dilemma, the Prince sought to be moderate even in massacre. He tried to give a memorable lesson with the minimum waste of life and the minimum expenditure of explosives. For that night, he proposed only the wrecking of Broadway. He directed the air fleet to move in column over the route of this thoroughfare, dropping bombs, the Waterland leading and so our Bert smallways became a participant in one of the most cold-blooded slaughters in the world's history in which men who were neither excited nor except for the remotest chance of a bullet in any danger poured death and destruction upon homes and crowds below he clung to the frame of the porthole as the airship tossed and swayed and stared down through the light rain that now drove before the wind into the twilight streets watching people running out of the houses, watching buildings collapse and fires begin. As the airships sailed along, they smashed up the city as a child will shatter its cities of brick and card. Below, they left ruins and blazing conflagrations, and heaped and scattered dead men, women, and children mixed together as though they had been no more than Moors, or Zulus, or Chinese lower new york was soon a furnace of crimson flames from which there was no escape cars railways ferries all had ceased and never a light lit the way of the distracted fugitives in that dusky confusion but the light of burning he had glimpses of what it must mean to be down there glimpses and it came to him suddenly, as an incredible discovery, that such disasters were not only possible now in this strange, gigantic, foreign New York, but also in London, in Bun Hill, that the little island in the Silver Seas was at the end of its immunity, that nowhere in the world any more was there a place left where a small ways might lift his head proudly and vote for war and a spirited foreign policy and go secure from such horrible things. End of chapter six parts four, five, and six recording by William Tomko